Good morning. I always forget to do this, but my name is Nikolai, if I haven't met you yet. I know this doesn't count, but at least you know my name. I get to finish up our series this morning. I just said all that to buy time. Okay. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to be uh, finishing up our series, um, The Story of God, with uh, the ending. And that's a good thing. And it's a very fitting day to do it, just like Char was saying. Um, The end. I don't know if you've ever reached the end of a book and you're almost sad it's over because the story's done. Uh, This story of God's a little different because once the story's done, actually another one is is beginning. This is all the prelude to the next story. So um, all that to say... This is normally a bittersweet topic, and uh, today it's, it's definitely that. So um, the passage that we're going to at least be starting in this morning, just for us to get an idea of where the story is heading, we're going to do what you never do with a book. We're going to read the last page, all right? Or maybe some of you do. Who's a last page reader? Anybody? Oh, I see. Okay. All right. Is it just because of the anxiety? You don't want to... I need to know how it ends so I can enjoy this book. Well, we're going to do that this morning, actually. Revelation chapter 22. So if you'd all stand for the reading of God's word, I promise you you won't be standing very long. Genesis chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, as you look into your word, Lord, I pray that we would be filled with hope to see the end, to see the end that you knew and saw from the beginning. Lord, I pray that it would fill our hearts with with joy to know that everything is worth it, and to know that we have an enduring and eternal hope. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, we get to start at the end. I like to call this, uh, the, the title is, is the, um, the restoration of all things. But I, I like to think of this, this is the culmination of all things. Right? This is the third act. This is the, this is the f- fulfillment. Every storyline actually gets gets um, resolved. This is it. But normally, when we, when we talk about these things, end times, eschatology, last things, however you want to say it, there's a lot of anxiety and there's a lot of fear around this. And, you know, we want to address that in the beginning and talk a little bit about that. So, study of last things. Let's look at our first slide. There's some people, this is their introduction to the study of last things. There you go. We'll go through this. I was going to have my laser pointer so I could do all this. I'm sure you can all read that. Take down notes quick because this is all important stuff. All the arrows and the things, and if you can draw, you put those in your notes too. I don't know why, but anybody see the McDonald's native ad down here? (laughs) Except it's now the Crimson Arches, right? So now it's more intense. Next slide. Yeah, maybe it looks like this. I like this one because it's it's got from from Jesus moving forward. This one feels... um, very 1950s 
kind of illustration. Anybody seen one of these? The bubble, the pictures kind of help still. This is intimidating. Next. This one, this one feels cool. This is, this is nice. I feel like I could draw this. Lots of just circles and things. All right, this is this idea of all of human history, so we expand it out a little bit. We're going to do a little bit of that today. Actually, a lot of, a lot of bit of that today. Uh, next. Yeah. Goodness gracious. You can't read it, but there's 31 points to this thing. Going all the way down, all those arrows. And every single one is extremely important for you to memorize. Right? The closing events chart, as though that's going to soften this blow. It's just the closing events. Next one. Oh, yeah. This one, I think, is my absolute favorite, because someone actually drew all of this. Someone, yeah, someone drew the picture right there. The, Jesus' face is right there. Probably see the big America down there at the bottom. I don't know if you can read through there. We've got Rome and we've got Dark Ages. Byzantium's in there too. We've got a lot of stuff going on. Whole lot of things happening. Next. There you go. Here's another one. I hope that you're taking notes on all these as we go through. This one looks like it's printed out of like a college course or something. If you went to a Bible school, you probably had something like this. Here you go. Here's the end. Enjoy. Next. And here you go. Here's a, man, look at the text on there. Eschatology. I could have preached about Jesus, but I picked this instead. So, and that's, that's a lot of people's perspective on this, right? You get through something like this, and you're like, I don't even, why, why? Why did we do this? Now I'm just totally anxious. I can't sleep tonight. Anybody seen the, uh, oh man, Thief in the Night movie? Anybody? I want to see hands. Yes. Thief in the Night. If you haven't seen it, you should see it. It is a movie event. All right, you can take the slide down now. It's making me nervous having that up there. But um, That's normally someone's introduction. Like, here you go, it's super complex. Get ready, and you get a fastball right in your, right in your forehead. All this stuff, right? And no wonder people are anxious and fearful when you talk about it. You have to understand this chart, here you go. It's not like that. And, and, and if your mind goes there, when you think about the end or end times or eschatology or something like that, oftentimes we spend way too much time in the chart. The chart makes us anxious. We look at the chart and we say, well, if that's all it is, I, I don't even want to bother with it. And so the sad reality is, even people are very interested in the topic, and this should be where we go for hope. It's now so hidden somewhere in that chart, we miss it. We miss the end. Not understanding the end actually impacts how you live. It changes how you live. Without knowing what the end is, it's really difficult to know what you're supposed to be doing. Right? How in the world are we supposed to know how this story resolves if we don't know what is coming and what's happening? So again, if that's, if that's your experience with eschatology, that is not what we're going to be going through this morning. First of all, I only have this time to do it. We don't have time to go through any of that kind of stuff. So what we're going to do is we're just going to finish out the story. Now in order to finish out the story, this particular story, the story of God, so many parts and so many components, we're going to walk back through this, not 
extensively, but we're going to walk through where we've been so we can understand how it all fits. All right, so don't worry. We're not taking any additional time. But there's a larger principle at stake here that we, we really do need to see, and it's that beautiful thread that goes all the way through the story. So the key in understanding God's plan for the future truly is an understanding the beginning and how it progresses. So that's what we're going to go back to. We're going to go back to the beginning. So in the very, very beginning of this series, we talked about creation. All right? Genesis 1.1. What that did is that, that gives God the authority, the authority in creation as its creator to do as he pleases. It isn't good that we have a good God. Right? So we have, we have creation. God made not only all of creation, but as a part of creation, he made humanity. He made us, man and woman. Right? Part of his creation. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 1. You're just at the end. Now we'll go to the beginning. Genesis 1. Actually, go to verse 26. The creation of man, God said, And then God said, Let us make man in our image. After our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the creeping things that creep on the earth. So God created man and woman, uh, man in his own image. In the image of, of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now if you look, it says here in verse 28, and God blessed them. You know that word right there for blessed? God gave the ability for them to have children. Right there. It's the same word used for Sarah when she was blessed. It's the same word used of barren women when they are blessed to have children. Right there, they are equipped and able to fulfill the command they're going to receive. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the heaven, I should say, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, that is on its face. That's on the face of the earth, and every tree with every seed of fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And look at verse thirty-one. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. It's very important to look and to see. This is the only time God says this is very good. Every other time things are good, this is very good. Man and woman, in their place, is very good. But the point we need to go back to is the fact that man and woman were made in the image of God. This is extremely important. The image of God was placed on earth in order to have dominion as his representatives. That is the point. That's the point of imaging. The point of being the image is to do that. This word is used of kings, as, uh, as the image of God, it's used of idols. But mankind is the image of God. And as the image of God, as the actual image that God had placed on earth, we are to not make idols. Because any idol that we make of God is deficient because it's not us. Does that make sense? The reason we don't have other idols is because God already made images of himself to rule, and to have dominion. That is our role. That's what you're supposed to do. So if you look there, the role of humanity, the role of mankind is to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth, to have godly dominion over the earth. When that word subdue 
meaning to have, uh, to bear the benefit of creation, to use it wisely. Stewardship. We're given this earth. Now, the fact that humanity can multiply means that when we subdue, we can't subdue just for ourselves. We have to subdue for the later imagers so that they might continue. This is the building block of human society. This is why we do what we do on the earth. This is just living. This is just life. This is what we were supposed to be doing. This is what they did in the garden. They were told to garden. and God saw it as very good. As we continue in the story, the next we have the fall. Right? And I would actually put three events together just so we can kind of see their effect. You have the fall, you have the incursion, you have the tower. The fall, pretty important pivotal thing that takes place. Genesis chapter 3, it brought death. An actual end to life that was not part of the original plan. <clears throat> but God's plan is so robust, it can handle that. The other thing it brought is the potential for all kinds of evil and rebellion. Brought that potential. Humanity can now engage in every rebellious act against God. Next would be the incursion. This is a supernatural incursion. It's an influx of now supernatural understanding and knowledge. In Genesis chapter 6, we see that. We see the sons of God came down. They mixed. And this has a massive effect on human society. And it's important to see that point, and you'll see why towards the end. Supernatural interference and investment in evil, what it leads to is human practice of the perfection of evil. Man, people got good at evil, if you can even say that. They perfected it. Right? And that's where you have Noah and company. It's probably not what it said on the boat, but I think that would be a good idea. But Noah and company, they were preserved. And so they have this idea that God is a preserving God, even in the face of great judgment. Right? The outcome of all this was the flood, judgment on the earth. And so we learn this in principle, sin brings judgment. And not just personal judgment, but judgment on a world scale. It's a big deal. That's how much God sees sin as the enemy. After the flood, next big pivotal time is the tower. The tower is this opportunity all mankind had to unify in the rebellion against God. See, the flood didn't take care of sin. It didn't wipe it all away. But now this is humanity itself engaging in this type of total rebellion. Not every man did. Not every woman did. Not every family. But the majority rebelled against God. Open rebellion. What this led to was separation of mankind. That's where we get our languages. We're all separated out. We see the division of the nations. And if you go to Deuteronomy 32.8, it talks about how then God gave them over to their sin. And they were now headed up by these uh, sinful gods, lowercase g. And they're enslaved by it. So it talks about it in Romans 1. But we also see, as we see the promise, the very next thing, with, you know, God's not done with his imagers. What we see after the tower, after these three events... As God starts to put his plan into practice, we have Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, Genesis 15, God calls Abraham. To do what? To start a nation. God's portion. God is going to bring about his plan, whether humans will cooperate or not, on the whole scale. So he brings Abraham out to Canaan, 
and he begins to move forward with his own plan. And that's the setup for the Old Testament, nation versus the nations. That's what we see. There is, however, another part to that. It's found in 1 Kings. Go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. Don't judge Elijah on this chapter alone. This is his great failure. But Elijah runs. After a great victory, he's intimidated by Jezebel and he runs and he runs away. He speaks to God and he says, I'm the only one. I'm the only one faithful to you. I'm it. God says, no. Says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. There's still 7,000 there. We get this idea that even though the nation as a whole might have rejected God and might be following after other gods, there's still a remnant. There's still a group that's holding fast to the Lord. And this is a really important principle to carry through through the story that there is always a remnant, there's always some that see Yahweh as the rightful God and king of this world. It's very important. Hang on to that. Fast forward in time, we see Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus, our redeemer, right? There's so many things that we could stop and talk about with Jesus. I'm just going to talk about a few. As far as Jesus in this story, this is the turning point of all human history. Our calendars were all oriented to it, at least at one point. B.C. and A.D., before Christ and after Christ. That's a fitting way to look at human history, actually. If you look at that time, look at what Jesus did when Jesus showed up. And we we had one of the parts of the story just just talking about when our Redeemer arrived. Think about this. When Jesus came, he came to fulfill. He came to fulfill all of these different roles, all of these different things that had been deficient in the history of man. Man could not be dependent on to complete the story as God had intended. So Jesus came and he did it for us. He lived the life we couldn't live, not just ours personally, which is true, but also for the story. He fulfilled all the things that were supposed to be done in this story that we could never do. We as humankind, think about this. Think about Adam. Big failure, right? I mean, sorry, Adam, but you're only known for the big screw up, right? You and your wife. Jesus was tempted with the same thing in the desert, had victory. In fact, he's called the, the last Adam later on by Paul. Right? You've got Abraham. It says that Jesus is the, the father of our faith. And being sons of Abraham, those are, those are now included as those who are found in Jesus. Moses is the great lawgiver. Jesus turns it on its head with the Sermon on the Mount. The text says there's a greater righteousness. It says, I fulfilled the law. Right? You got Joshua, Jesus, wandering through. It seems to us to be wandering. But pivotal victories spiritually throughout Israel during his ministry. Right? In a sense, conquering the land. Israel. Israel itself was supposed to have a position in the world, which they failed to do. Jesus and his followers will fulfill that. David fulfills the role of David. Is not only king of Israel, but king of the earth. The prophets, the priests, Jesus, 
fulfills those roles. He is the sacrifice that we are waiting for. He fulfills that promise. And more so, he is the promise. It was given in Genesis 3 as, a, as the thing that would actually fix the issues that we had. He, as the head crusher that we see in Genesis chapter 3, he was the promise of the one that was coming. That's him. He fulfills all of those things. He is the promise. Turn with me, if you will, Gen- Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, look at verse 31. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but there's one point that I want to show, I want to bring up. Starting at verse 31. Uh, just so you have context here, Daniel is in the employ of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's one of his magi, one of his wise men. King has a dream. No one can interpret it. They say, hey, Daniel's pretty good at that. They bring Daniel in. There's high stakes. If Daniel screws up, they're all dead. No pressure. He prays to the Lord. The Lord gives him the interpret- not only the interpretation, but he gives him the dream as well as the interpretation. Look at verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image was mighty and of exceeding brightness and stood over you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, its chest and arms, silver, the middle thighs, uh, I'm sorry, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partially of iron and partially of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hands, and it struck the image at its feet, the feet of iron and clay, and it broke them into pieces. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so not a trace of them could be found. But the stone... The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the earth. Look down at verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain, but no human hand. They've broken to pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. His interpretation is true. Now, if you were in an eschatology class or if this was an eschatology course, they'll put up an image, put that image up there and go through the, the gold and the silver and the things. And you know the thing that always gets left out or at least doesn't get as much discussion? The whole point of the dream which is the stone, that was the big impactful thing. In fact, right after this, we see that Nebuchadnezzar missed the point as well because what does he do? He makes a massive image and says, see, I'm doing just like with my dream. It's like you missed the point. The stone. The stone. Look at what the stone does. So who do you think the stone is or what do you think the stone is? This is Jesus. Jesus called the rock a lot. Throughout the, the Pentateuch, through the wanderings, he's called the rock. He's the rock that brings water. In fact, later on in the New Testament, it identifies that rock as Jesus. Okay, so we've got some correlation here. But what happens? So you have this, this statue that represents all of human dominion on the earth, politically, socially, 
culturally, empires, right? They rule. What happens? The stone comes. Stone not cut by human hands. No one does this on their own. It's not by human means. Comes and destroys this image. What does the stone do? It describes it as doing a couple different things. The stone turns into what? Turns into a mountain. What does it do? You can cheat and look. Fills the earth. Does that sound like something that mankind was supposed to do? Oh, yeah. We were supposed to multiply and do what? Fill the earth. This is not disconnected from the story. This, This is actually, this is the point. It's supposed to fill the earth. And guess what? Humankind, we, we, we didn't do it. We didn't do it right. We faltered. We did it wrong. The result was this massive, ugly statue. And guess what? A stone's going to come and do it right. I would say that that does not happen in the future from our point right now. That stone came in the past. First coming of Jesus, what happened after that? What becomes established? It's the kingdom. And what are we? Not a sure question. We're part of what? We're part of that kingdom. And what does Jesus tell us to do at the ascension? He leaves and he says to do what? Go into all the world. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Doesn't this sound like exactly the same thing? Don't lose the story as it's going through. This is important. The church is part of that fulfillment. It's not total fulfillment of this, but it's an important part. We're filling the earth. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to go out from Jerusalem. We're supposed to go into all of the world, preaching the gospel, making disciples. Luke 19, we get a parable that talks about those who went out into the kingdom. We're supposed to go and to occupy. Go and to occupy until he comes. All I mean, you just go and you hold your ground. Go to a dark place in the world, establish the kingdom, hold tight. Till when? Well, till the kingdom comes, till Jesus arrives. Hang tight. It's coming. It'll happen. That's what we're supposed to do. That's part of this message. The message that we get from this story is keep going. Keep doing it. We are doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're we're fulfilling what God has called us to do. Think about this. The kingdom of God is supposed to go and to fill and then to do what? To subdue the earth. That's what we're called to do. The Lord has begun to fulfill that. We are part of that story. We are his body. Jesus is our head. We're his body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that. That's the story. That's the story moving forward. When Jesus came, His crucifixion, his resurrection, proved to be the conquering of death. They had no idea, it says in Corinthians, that by killing the king of glory, that was actually part of the plan. It says in Corinthians, if they actually knew that that was what would happen, they wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't have killed Jesus. That was the death blow, literally, blow to death. And now, from that point, after the resurrection, the whole story moves backwards. And what we see throughout the New Testament and continuing on in our time is a reversal 
of that story leading up to the crescendo, the reconciliation and the restoration of all things, the culmination. Look at this. What was kind of the first event for the church? After the ascension, Jesus says, okay, just hang tight, go back and wait, and where are they supposed to wait for? Power, right? It happens to be the Holy Spirit. They're up in the upper room. What happens? The Holy Spirit knock on the door and said, hey, guys, I'm here. I'm supposed to be with you. I know you knew Jesus. I'm, Jesus sent me. I'm here to teach you. And to, No, what happened? Fiery tongues. And, and what happens? What's the event that takes place right there? We call it Pentecost. That's the name of that. But what, what, what actually happens? It, we reverse the tower. Tower is reversed. See, now instead of separating people out by languages, now God is saying, you know what? We're going to remove that. That's no longer a barrier. Because guess what we're doing? This mountain is going to fill the earth. Reversal. All right? Next part in the story, going backwards, we have the concept of the remnant within the nation. That, that's, that's one principle that we start to see. We see that principle taught. The tares in the wheats, or the tares in the wheat. Right? The wolves that come in just to say, you know what? Not everyone who says that they're part of the kingdom is part of the kingdom. So you who are faithful, you hold tight. And that's a message we see repeated throughout the New Testament. We get that concept. The remnant is there. Okay? And that's kind of where we see a lot of the New Testament in. If you're in Revelation, that, that's in Matthew 13 where it talks about that. Uh, Revelation 12, we get this picture. We get this picture of a woman. Without getting into the details, the understanding is that this woman is Israel. And what we see is that as we get towards the end, God is going to protect the woman, the faithful nation Right? Those who are faithful to him, he's going to protect them. So keep that main principle and that idea. It's still the nation versus the nations in that regard because every nation on earth is turned against Israel at that time. God is still protecting Israel. They haven't been lost, haven't been forgotten. That storyline thread is not just ditched. God is going to fulfill it. He's going to take care of it. What we see in Revelation, throughout Revelation, this is a lot of the scary bits. This is the scary parts. We see a lot of supernatural activity. What we see is we see a reversal. Going back to Genesis 6, a supernatural incursion into human events, it comes back. This happens again, not in the same way, but this supernatural thing starts to happen, and it's scary when you read through it because it is weird and it is bizarre, but just understand, the reason that it's taking place is so they can be judged. It's bringing it up so it can get removed bringing that forward. It even says the abyss is opened up. I mean, it gets nutty. Right? But the reason that happens is so that there can be a reversal, so there can be a judgment. The story is walking backwards. So if you're walking backwards to the story, what's left? Well, I'm back through, and we got the tower and the incursion. What's the next point? Or Fall. What's, what's the opposite of a fall? Sorry? A climb? A building, right? It's, so instead of a fall from grace, what we see is an in, injection of grace and glory. Revelation 19. 
is the beginning of the reversal of the fall. Jesus actually shows up. His feet touch the earth. And what we have under his leadership is a restoration to reverse the fall. The world is healed. Cultures, nations, peoples are healed. And we live as people on the earth. At that point, all of us will be in our resurrected bodies. And what we see is a kingdom on earth filling the earth, having dominion, proper subduing of the world under the leadership of Jesus, a reversal of the fall. And what's it leading back to? It leads back to a cleansing and restoration back to Eden, a paradise. What was always intended from the very beginning. Do you see this epic story? Started all the way back there. We've walked all the way through that story. We've seen its reversal and we see the restoration. And one day, it'll be no thing for us to just walk up to the tree of life, have a bite. Do you understand how amazing that is? It's a total reversal. Come with me. Follow me. Revelation chapter 22. Or I'm sorry, 21. Revelation chapter 21. Let's look at these verses. Verses 1 through 8. This is John talking about his vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A pretty spectacular sight. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, or the one who overcomes, will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Kind of ends on a downer there, but that's that's the story. That's what we're waiting for. That's our hope. Isn't that amazing? Eden, as we look back at it, 
I've heard this from a lot of folks, especially through the reading we've been doing for Year of Biblical Literacy, especially when we're in Genesis. Why did, why did God just allow all this stuff? Why, why, why didn't, what would have happened if we had never sinned, we meaning just humanity? What if Adam and Eve had never sinned? We'd get the same result as what we get in the end. <laughs> we still get it. It's still part of the story. It's still part of where God is taking humanity. We just took a really long detour around (laughs) thousands of years detour to get there. It's the same thing. It's what God had always intended for humanity. You see, this is part of the big picture idea. There is nothing that can thwart the plan of God. Do you know why he allows sin? Because he allows the enemy to try. Do you know why? So we can all eventually get to the day where every single created being, physical, immaterial, spiritual, natural, we're all standing, we all stand before the throne, every single one of us. This is a pretty big place. And at that moment, everyone has to admit Jesus is Lord. Every single created being bows. Part of the reason for that is no one can accuse God of anything. Well, God, what about this? What if this happened? None of his enemies could say, yeah, well, you did. It's just similar to the conversation that Satan has with, with God in the book of Job. Yeah, well, if you did this, then maybe it'd be different. No one can say a thing. It's all been done. It's all been tried. And guess what? God still won. His plan still came about. Everything is as he planned it to be. For us, it's a super, super long time. But you know what? From God's perspective, this is all the important stuff. God is willing that we would be uncomfortable so that we come to the best end. How amazing is that? Same ending to the story. As we live on this earth, we're looking forward to this one event, to the day of the Lord. And it's important to highlight this. This is the, the day of the Lord is specifically talked about, I think, more than 80 times throughout the Bible. It talks about the day of the Lord. You know what the day of the Lord is? When all the things come together. God shows up, it's his day. Whatever came before, no one will remember it. Just like that statue that was pulverized into dust and the wind blows it away, no one remembers. Whatever great kingdom or great achievement humankind had before that pales in comparison and isn't even able to be remembered. Done. God overshadows all of it. He arrives, it's his day. Evil is conquered. The rebellers put in their place. Those who are in prison put into judgment. Those who are his elevated to the position that's promised. All things are made new. All things are as they should be. That is where we are heading. That is the outcome of the day of the Lord. But you know what? From our perspective as humanity on this earth, it looks really scary. Right? Read through Revelation. Read through some of those parts. You say this, a tenth of the cities falling in earthquakes the supernatural things that are going to take place, this is scary. And you know what? Yeah, it is. That's the intensity of the day of the Lord. 
But you know what? God is good and God is just. And while we should always be prepared for trying times, you know, and many of our brothers and sisters around the world are already experiencing really trying times in this world. Because guess what? The kingdom of darkness does not like that the kingdom of heaven is coming to replace it. So we experience that. Some of us, depending on where we live and how we live, experience that to more intensity than others. Right? So pray for China. Pray for North Korea. Pray for Belarus. Pray for Nigeria. Pray for the Middle East. Pray for these places. Central America, South America. Pray for, for these people. Pray for our brothers and sisters as they experience the worst of it. And you know what? It's going to spread and it's going to get worse up until the day of the Lord. Do you know why? <laughs> and know that it's coming to an end. It's going to be over soon. And so it will increase in intensity. And you know what? So we prepare for it. You know what? We don't pretend like nothing's ever going to happen to us because guess what? Sometimes it does. And it's part of the story. It's part of where we're going. If we live in fear and we live in anxiety, it means we don't know the whole story. It means we're focusing on only one aspect of the story. Turn with me to 1 Peter. Chapter 4. Then we'll start at verse 7. I've often said this passage, if you ever forget what you're supposed to do as a Christian, just go back here. It's a reorienting passage. Helps us to remember. It directly applies to what we're looking at today. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Another way to say that, the culmination of all things is at hand. What's he talking about? He's talking about the end. He's talking about what we're talking about. Therefore, build a bomb shelter and buy lots of canned food. Don't just buy guns, buy ammo. That's the important thing to have is the ammo. They're going to take the ammo away. And then we also have to make sure we have seeds. You need to throw in all of your technology, right? We should actually build Faraday cages for all of us to live in so they don't find us. And we have to, we have to hide. We have to hide and we have to run and we have to be scared all the time, Right? And don't trust all the stuff going on in Russia and watch out for Iran and for North Korea and the whole list. Is that what it says? The culmination of all things is at hand. And so, therefore, quite the opposite, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Meaning, have your eyes open to what's actually going on around you. Be self-controlled, understand and know what the whole story is. Don't overreact, but at the same time, be sober-minded. There is a day for getting canned food. There is a day for stocking up on water. There are days for that, and there's times for that. Maybe we should do that anyway. We live in earthquake country, right? There are days to be prepared, but you know what? We don't do it out of fear. We actually do it in self-controlled and sober-minded, right? And it says, why do we have to have those things? For the sake of our prayers. It goes back down to this. You can't prepare well enough for what's coming. Just, just understand that. 
If you look at what's coming onto the earth, even what's here now, you can't prepare for it. You cannot be completely self-sufficient. And so you know what? We are, we are sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayers because the Lord is the one who will bring us through any difficulty, personal tragedy, large-scale <laughs> invasion. I mean, whatever it is, the Lord is the one who's going to bring us through it. The kingdom of God has stood before and through the test of time. It's not going anywhere. We are okay because guess what? We aren't building a kingdom here. Our kingdom is coming. Even if we get relocated, pushed around, it's okay. All right? For the sake of our prayers, we need to be sober-minded. Pray for the right things. Pray for each other. Care for each other, right? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly in a stretching way, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Isn't this a weird message on eschatology? Love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ. Look at the end. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's the same topic. It's what we're talking about. So what should we do in light of this? We need to live properly as believers. Love each other. Care for each other. Show hospitality. Speak the words God has given. Serve one another. For what end? The glory of God. And guess what? His glory and dominion are coming. They're a sure thing. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The dominion. The ruling. This is what it's going back to. That was our original job as imagers. Is for the Lord to be able to extend his influence on earth through his imagers, which are us. That's what it's all going back to. So even here, how, how should we respond to a study of last things? We need to live like Christians. We need to be believers. We need to love each other. We need to care for each other. Turn with me to Revelation 22.7. We're going to end with this. Revelation 22, verse 7. last page. It's hard to get to. We hit the concordance. Turn around. 22.7. This is Jesus speaking. He says, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. How do we do that? 1 Peter 4. That's how we do it. Heavenly Father, when we think of the end, the end is sometimes intimidating, it can be scary, it can be overwhelming. But Lord, I pray that you would come quickly. We pray that your kingdom would have total dominion on this earth. We pray 
Lord, that as you prepare us to live lives worthy of the gospel, Lord, I pray that we would see that as the best preparation, Lord, to live until you come. Lord, I pray that we would love one another, care for one another in light of this, that we would, Lord, instill hope in one another, encourage one another with these words. Whatever difficulty comes into our lives, losing a job, family stress, or even something bigger like persecution, or losing a loved one. Lord, we know that for those who have gone on, Lord, just as we think on Christina, Lord, she knows this stuff better than we do. She sees it. She has seen the glory. And so, Lord, we look forward to experiencing that all together as one big family. Lord, I pray that we would remember that. We would have hope above hope. Lord, that we would continue, that we would endure, that we would be counted among those who are the overcomers, the conquerors, the ones who endure. I pray we would do it until your kingdom comes, until we are in paradise with you. Thank you for your promises. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.